1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to NBN. My name is Geert, your host, and I am honored today to be joined by Dr. Craig Stevens. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Stevens is a professor of pharmacology at the OSU Center for Health Sciences in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Over the years, he has also provided expert pharmacology consulting in both criminal and civil proceedings. And today we will focus on his recent book, The Drug Expert, A Practical Guide to the Impact of Drug Use in Legal Proceedings, which is published by Elsevier Academic Press. Um, if you'd ask me, it's a rich tome, actually uh, containing uh, containing uh, several strands of argument and narration, including, uh, the, of course, the stories of legal cases that, uh, that revolve around drug use, explanations of the pharmacology of a wide range of psychoactive compounds, and also the um, hands-on advice, almost a manual uh, of how a pharmacologist litigation consultant, aka the drug expert, might go about their work. Um, Craig, could you maybe describe where you come from, uh, professionally speaking, before you dive into the content?
0: Sure. Thank you again for having me on the show. Um, I grew up in Chicago, did traditional, undergraduate, and then actually served in the Peace Corps after undergraduate in Nepal, and then came back and went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, received a master's degree. And from there, I actually went to Mayo Clinic, uh, Department of Pharmacology up in Minnesota and received a PhD in pharmacology. After that, it was a two-year postdoctoral fellowship up north, University of Minnesota. And then for my first job, came to Tulsa, Oklahoma about 32 years ago.
1: That's the that's great and and um, well what you now describe is uh, uh, the academic track but uh, you're not just an academic right
0: correct even though um, I enjoy my teaching with the medical students and research in the laboratory I've taken on an advocation uh, what we call moonlighting job uh, being a litigation consultant for attorneys and prosecutors here within the state, the city, and also uh, across the nation.
1: Who would, you say, um, who would you say the book is for exactly?
0: That's a really good question.
1: <laughs> um, quite
0: a bit of discussion with my editor has occurred along those lines. Um, primarily, it's for colleagues that are also academic pharmacologists, other PhD pharmacologists like myself, because I felt there was a real need for us to get more involved in the legal system. Um, and we'll probably get into that a little bit more later. But the, um, the second audience was for the attorneys, how to deal with the drug expert, why you might need a drug expert, and also give them some basic pharmacology knowledge. Uh, again, I've, I've been doing litigation consulting for almost 20 years now, uh, over 100 cases. And I'm still amazed sometimes at the lack of good pharmacology knowledge uh, that's that's shown in the courts and court decisions. But so there was kind of that dual audience was, was what I was hoping to reach. And um, I think we've been a little bit successful, mostly with the Ph.D. pharmacologists who realize they can not only um, be experts in pharmacology. That's very well needed, but also make a little extra money on the side as well.
1: What's the what's the? Because if you read the book, it's it's to be successful as a litigation consult, uh, pharmacology li- litigation consultant. I I you do make it very clear that quite a strong strong legal knowledge is is necessary as well. Um, what's the unique perk then of the of the pharmacology PhD in the in the courtroom?
0: Right. I think there's actually two things. First, there's a really basic knowledge of drugs, how drugs work, what effects they have on behavior, which is often an issue in the legal system. You know, uh, was this person inebriated when they were driving? Was this person under the influence of cocaine when they killed somebody? Uh, the, The influence of drugs in our society, especially here in America, is great and totally underestimated in my opinion so you know that that's one 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 reason there as far as your question about the legal knowledge i include that just because it's stuff that i've learned along the way that's been helpful you know the basic difference was a civil trial versus a criminal trial that helps the litigation expert or the drug expert it's not essential that they learn that but i think this book will save them some time to kind of learn things on their own and 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 they'll they'll appear more more involved with the hiring attorney if they know a little bit about the legal system. So yes, it was first first approach was to get as much pharmacology out there and and to entice pharmacology experts to do this also. And the second approach was to give them a little bit of legal background at a very introductory level because I am not a lawyer by any means. Um, and uh, and thirdly to serve for the attorneys to have a guidebook and what to expect with a drug expert and what what they can and cannot testify on.
1: Was there um, a, a particular incident, so to say, or, or, or a particular moment in time where you conceived this book?
0: That That's a good question. It It's something that's been brewing for probably about the last five years. Um, one of the developmental editors at uh, Elsevier, who I also published a long-running pharmacology textbook with them, um, was looking for another project and I uh, I did not answer right away. It's probably about a year before I finally put together an idea and a book proposal. So it has been brewing. i I've um as I built more cases and got more experience, I definitely felt like I reached the point where I could now, use some of those cases as a way to introduce different pharmacological issues. And that's basically how the book is set up. There's an introductory chapter, chapter one, and then the remaining chapters are based on real-life cases. And I use that plot device almost in order to introduce pharmacological issues in that case and wider issues that may be related. So it's just kind of a a way to frame, framework the book, so I have um, a way to introduce, I hope in an interesting way, the different issues that arose.
1: Definitely. Um, what was your first case back in the day? Which, which year are we talking?
0: Well, it actually goes back to 1998, I believe, was the first case, and that is actually in the book as the very first case uh, after the introductory chapter. So chapter two is, is titled that parent's worst nightmare, drug induced psychosis and deadly police force. So yes, this was the first case I, I, I was interested in, uh, it ended up the, uh, attorneys that were representing the police department called my chair up looking for a consultant on drugs. And he was, was not interested himself. And so he contacted me and, and that's how I got my first moonlighting job as a drug expert.
1: Yeah, I find it a, 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 a touching chapter, so to say, it's, um, if, if you could explain a bit more about um, how, it, how it went about.
0: Sure, it was a, you're right, it was touching and tragic and sad. And like most cases are, uh, one thing I've learned about being in court, nobody wins. It's It's tragic all the way around. But anyway, in this particular case a young 16 year old boy was at home and um, started to show signs of aggressiveness towards his parents, um, knocked over a TV tray when the dad was eating in front of the TV and, and went to his room and was playing music very loud. So eventually the parents actually called the local police department to come help them with their son. He ended up uh, walking out of his bedroom after many attempts to get him to open the door and believe had a knife at his side, the police shot him dead twice in the chest, you know, directly as, as they're trained, I came to learn, is they, they shoot to kill. But um, it ended up on the toxicology that he had high levels of, of diphenhydramine, which is found in over-the-counter um, Benadryl and other agents here in, in the States, but all over the world as well, over-the-counter sleep aids or for allergies or drugs. It's an antihistamine drug. And um, the the um, issue was what was the effect of that high level of diphenhydramine, as well as some THC that was found, but that ended up being a low level that showed not uh, acute use. But anyway, diphenhydramine and over-the-counter drugs can be abused and are abused quite a bit by younger uh, um, um, people, especially because they can just walk in a drugstore and get it without prescription. Um, and and when you take it at high doses these drugs have effects that can also cause delirium and and psychotic reactions and so the testimony that i provided was yeah at high doses this is what happens and um uh basically that was my role in it so in that case i was actually working on the side that was defending and justifying trying to justify the police action it ended up as 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 the uh narrative at the end of the chapter shows each chapter has a narrative that starts the case and then kind of finalizes it at the end of the chapter. It ended up that the jury found against the police and thought they used excessive force. And I think the family was awarded close to a million dollars for that in damages. But yes, that was a very tragic case because nobody wins.
1: Yeah, definitely. Is there, is there a, um, whether it's in the book or not, but is there a case from your career that, uh, that you are particularly proud of, of your own contribution?
0: That is a good question. Um, I think the cases that I feel like I am contributing as much of my expertise in the most general broad way to our society is probably the lethal injection cases. So, um, I think one of the times it really stands out, I was in Ohio and um, uh, working on the side of a condemned inmate. And for the first time, the judge ruled in the favor of the condemned inmate. So it was kind of a tipping point. And since then, there's been other other decisions along those lines. But because I was directly involved in that case and mentioned in the judge's decision, I felt like, okay, you know, finally, some pharmacology knowledge is being introduced in this all-important uh, issue of lethal injection so that was probably my one of my prouder moments if you might you know might say because so much of the litigation within the lethal injection issue is not very um, rewarding uh, judgments so far have have rarely gone in the case of the condemned inmates
1: and, and what, what does it mean if the judge ruled in favor?
0: Well, it, it meant <laughs> it might be a pyrrhic victory because in this case, it uh, got reversed on appeal, you know, in the, in the system here, of course, just the, the, the one, the first trial uh, doesn't always hold because there's an appeal system here, which can be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, work I did on a previous case did make it all the way to Supreme Court in an Oklahoma lethal injection issue. But um, so, you know, I think what was rewarding in in a very non-rewarding area of litigation uh, was that at least the magistrate judge did favor and accepted the science. Finally, there's nothing more frustrating than being a scientist, a pharmacologist. And yet you hear non-experts talk in a way that's just doesn't make sense pharmacologically speaking. And so a lot of the issues in the lethal injection um, have to do with dosage. Well, if you give a drug at this such a high dose, then it will have this effect where in fact, my argument always been, you can't change the nature of a drug just <laughs> because you give more of it. You can't change the nature. They work a certain way. So. Anyway, I'm kind of straying off topic here. I apologize, but um, um, that that's, that definitely was uh, somewhat rewarding to see that the what I consider the pharmacological truth finally enter the court record, you know, and be accepted.
1: Would you would you say because you you press the issue in the book as well in some some places? Do you would you say that um, this nature of the drug issue uh, goes wrong in in in, in more places?
0: In more places like in our society?
1: Um, in, in, in different kinds of cases uh, beyond the lethal injection uh, part.
0: Yes. I mean, you're right. Generally speaking, that's a good observation. The, I guess a theme throughout the book is we don't have good pharmacological knowledge in the legal system You know, at all levels. Uh, uh, the judges ha- haven't really been uh, briefed on the most modern pharmacological concepts. And I guess one of the, the, the saddest things is the medical scientific community has realized for decades now that drug dependence otherwise known as drug addiction is a disease state. The brain changes, there's pathology in the brain due to drugs, whereas the court system still is kind of the old fashioned almost 1800s view. That's a lack of will. Or this person has a moral failing, or for some other reason they just you know make the deci- a conscious decision to keep using drugs. That's not borne out by the data and the and the and the medical studies. So, you know, there's a real need to kind of update people and how to view drug dependence. Um, you know, become more modern and progressive and keep up the scientific literature. You know, it, it's 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 akin on a smaller scale. Well, actually not on a small scale, but it's akin to climate climate science and other scientific issues that we're finding as scientists that we have to continually push for the most basic understanding of science in our society. And and it happens in many, many countries. Um, But anyway, so yeah, that theme is throughout the book, you know, a lot of it is education. And again, that's why it's so appealing to a person like me, a professor, because I do a lot of teaching in my life. And when I'm before the jury, in that box, um, usually fairly anxious, but uh, trying to do it the best I can, I'm teaching to the jury. So it's, it's not a big stretch that way. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a nice parallel.
1: You, you, say, uh, you say anxious. Is there a, um, a particular reason why you feel anxious? Does that, does that remain uh, all the way through, even after 100 cases?
0: Well, that's a good point. I think um, the first time I sat in that box up on, you know, you can't help feeling uh, like you're in a movie because we've all seen so many movies now of trial scenes, right? And so that that kind of plays into into, into the uh, into the feeling. It's almost a little bit of the, the first time as an out of body experience, <laughs> but um, now I I enjoy it. I i I think I've been able to come up with some good techniques to establish a good rapport with the jury. For example, I watch them and I look at them and, and speak to them and, and, you know, as if they're my students in a class and, and, uh, you know, you know, you're doing good when you start getting the jury head nodding along with what you're saying and smiling, or at least looking at you. So, you know, there's, there's, and that's in the book, you know, how to, how to, how to be, uh, confident and how to come across to a jury. But, the anxiety you asked about is still there, at least in the beginning, and um, there is a great relief when the judge says, "Dr. Stevens, you may now step down." It's a good feeling to like be done after sometimes four hours on the stand, uh, uh, direct examination, and of course the uh, the cross examination, which is always the most challenging, but also sometimes the most fun. Um, but anyway some good stories there
1: <laughs> yeah it's always a big responsibility i i uh, presume
0: yeah for sure
1: so this uh this this alternative view of of addiction well the the alternative to the 1800s view uh, i would say does i mean of course in the in the extreme alternative uh, example would, would be like judge i am addicted the drug made me do it right um but I, I guess that's not the case, uh, uh, not the default case either. Uh, what, what's the nuance there?
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And I think that would be going a little bit too extreme to the other side. Like you said, the alternative to the 1800s. I think what we want is a more modified view, you know, the, the middle view, the middle way, as the Buddhist would say. You find the middle way where, yes, that does not exonerate someone from a crime that was committed because they're on drugs. However, it could be a mitigating factor, in other words, a factor that the jury knows about, and then they can determine maybe uh, either a lesser sentence or a different count. So I, I, I don't think that anyone in my position is saying the drugs give full excuse, but they should be taken into consideration. The most modern scientific data should be available to the courts and the juries when they make their decisions.
1: Is there the is there the legal uh, um, uh, wiggling room for that?
0: Yeah, I mean there there's what's called uh, diminished capacity, which is a legal concept, and there is drug induced diminished capacity. In other words, um, uh, in the civil civil area, I had a case where a woman who was on a lot of chemotherapy as well as being an alcoholic changed her will supposedly under the influence of some living young, much younger man that that uh, ended up getting all of this great wealth. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, in that case, it's, it's perhaps more causal where the drug had an effect because it's well known about chemo brain and chemo fog from people that receive cancer treatment that it affects the brain. And of course, alcohol has a, a much neurotoxic effects on the brain. So at that end, we can pretty much directly uh, correlate drug effects, causality with perhaps a diminished capacity. Um, but in other effects, um, it's, it's it's much more nuanced in the middle. For example, I, I do quite a bit of testimony, especially in the last five years about methamphetamine, which also induces very violent and aggressive behavior part of the way it activates the fight and flee mechanisms in the brain and so in that case we have someone that that um was threatening someone and that and and the person with methamphetamine ended up getting shot and they want to say it wasn't homicide the person that was charged they want to say it was self-defense so i might get a call after they get the toxicology on the victim and see that, well, they had like, you know, 10 times the highest recorded level of methamphetamine in their, in their blood. And so as a pharmacologist, I can say, well, you know, I can, I can testify on behalf of the, of the person's self-defense plea because methamphetamine causes extreme aggressivity. And, you know, you, and it's not like, well, maybe in some people and not others, there was actually a study from the seventies where they gave, everyone in the study, you couldn't do it nowadays, uh, but they gave everyone in the study, kept giving them methamphetamine until they became violent and psycho- psychotic. And an averaged dose of 70 milligrams or something. So, I mean, it's not all 100%. So when, when attorneys under cross-examination say, well, Dr. Stevens, that may happen in certain people, but not this victim. And I'm like, no, there's a study which shows it happened in 100% of people that were given this drug. you know. So, uh, but anyway, so in that case, it, the causality of drug on behavior and effects on the brain isn't as certain as other cases, but I still think it needs to be brought up.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So in, in the American legal system, as in most regulatory systems, I would say, there you have the, the four categories of, of um, uh, illegal drugs, prescription drugs, non-prescription drugs, and alcohol as you, uh, as you treat them. Um, could, you, could you maybe say a tiny bit more about the categories and, and how these different legal categories change the, the different legal cases in which these drugs are?
0: Yeah, the, um, well, first, uh, we, maybe we should just break down the categories really quickly. And, and maybe I can relate this also a little bit to Chapter 1. Um, chapter 1 is uh, drug use in America, basically, right? It's, it's, it's very American-centric. It's uh, entitled What a Long, Strange Trip It's Been, in homage to the Grateful Dead. And it's called Our Drug Society. And it starts right off with drug use by Americans, and it breaks down those four categories that you mentioned. And the bottom line of this chapter is for any drug and every drug, Americans use it at a much greater rate and numbers than any other country in the world. So as an American, <laughs> uh, I found that... Uh, uh fairly amazing and 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 somewhat depressing and another reason why uh drug experts are so sorely needed because americans use drugs so much that there's very few crimes that are committed without a drug involvement of some sort um and it, it's i also referred to it as a perfect storm in america because I, there's a subsection of chapter 1 that talks about drugs and mental illness and A lot of research has shown that many people who use drugs or or even abuse drugs are self-medicating. Again, America, right? We're not exactly famous for our healthcare system. It's not universal coverage, which is something I still don't get to this day, Uh, why it would still be debated uh, in a modern society. But anyway, um, so that again leads to drug abuse. So there's a lot of factors why America in that category does not shine. And, um, you know, the four, the four areas where we see this, this abuse is uh, prescription drugs, which, of course, Americans use more prescription drugs per capita than any other country. And then we have non-prescription drug abuse, again, the highest rates of any country, usually by um, teenagers and, and youth that may get introduced to drug abuse by OTC drugs. And then alcohol which again very strange in this country it's not regulated as a drug you might have heard of the fda food and drug administration all of our prescription drugs are regulated like that alcohol because of its unique heritage here in america and all being caught up in the prohib- prohibition and uh cosa nostra and other things it's under a uh, alcohol tobacco and firearms uh, regulation and it's it's more it has to do with the tax of alcohol and things like that than it does its regulation. So the regulation of alcohol falls in the cracks. It's a non-drug drug in our society. And so even though it's probably the worst drug in terms of outcomes and finances and loss of life and loss of jobs. So that's the third category. And the fourth is illegal drugs, which, of course, uh is, again, the the most legal drugs uh, used in in America rather than anywhere else. So it's that introductory chapter, I think, sets a good tone for where we stand as far as drug use and why drug use is in so many legal proceedings, because in this country, uh, there is a lot of drug use
1: could you um speaking of the different uh legal statuses of the of the drugs could you uh, say a bit more about the about the designer drug cases that you've treated so in the book you treat uh, at least two uh yeah. does come up more often
0: yeah I, I i haven't had too many of those um i'm not sure it's because of more local regional where Uh, Designer drugs, I think, tend to be more East Coast, West Coast in the United States. I could be wrong, but that might be part of it. But yeah, the two cases I had, um, had to do with uh, fake marijuana or what's called K2 here. Uh, um, It's uh, uh, THC analogs, chemical analogs that are sprayed on just regular leaves, not, not marijuana leaves. And plant substances and sold as as kind of a designer, and for a while they got away with it in America because they sold it as incense and it was in a quasi legal status. Now it's it's been you know laws have been passed so that it's 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 now a, uh, a controlled substance and, and illegal. Uh, and the other one had to do with an illegal and NM, and the MDMA type drug uh, called BZP, benzylpyridine. And um, that was the two cases that I highlighted in, in chapter 11 called I Want a New Drug, Fake Marijuana, Designer Stimulants, and Hallucinogens. Um,
1: have, have there been, because of course in, uh, uh, here, here in Europe, there's uh, in every country, there is a, slight, a slightly different treatment of, um, of these uh, new psychoactive substances Um how, how, how does that work in the U.S. exactly? Is there like an, an encompassing, um, how would you say that, uh, an, an encompassing regulation for substance groups? Or does every uh, individual substance have to be added to some list or something?
0: Right. That, that's very observant. The, the, um, originally, our laws were such that every individual chemical structure had to be listed. Then they passed a law called the lookalike law. And so it's uh, it's probably got a fancy title, Synthetic Drug Analog Act or something like that. But basically it says that the drug can be illegal even if it's not exactly listed. Its chemical structure is exactly listed. And it can be illegal because it's like another drug that's already listed as an illegal drug. And this was good because what the synthetic chemists were doing, they would add a simple methyl group or something on an already contraband substance and then be able to sell it legally under the old laws so adding the synthetic look-alike analog act onto our books made it easier to prosecute and get some of these dangerous drugs off the streets so i think that was a good move and um, i'm sure other countries are doing the same or may have even done it before us i'm not sure but it's definitely uh, a good way to handle that uh uh, constant uh, war against the synthetic chemists and the DEA in our country, for example. It also comes into play with the opioid epidemic because um, a lot of the uh, her- so-called heroin sold in America now is actually made up of fentanyl analogs, things like alpha-methyl fentanyl. And unfortunately, things that are coming from uh, uh, some Chinese laboratories, although that's trying to stop that. So you could change the fentanyl compound by adding another methyl group or a hydroxyl group or some small chemical group onto the original compound molecule, and it would be legal. But now, because of the synthetic act, like we mentioned, that's also helped the problem with the opioid epidemic as well.
1: This this likeness between substances, is it... um, is it just the chemical structure or is it um, uh, rather the workings, the, the physical effects of the, the drug?
0: Very excellent question. Yes. Um, not only does it have to match uh, to some degree the chemical structure with just a slight alteration to be a lookalike, it also has to be shown to work in the way of the one that it's a lookalike to. So if it's a, in the book I talk about an MDMA, ecstasy or X, uh, analog or look-alike and um, that's been shown in animal models and some human studies to be perceived and, and to cause effects just like MDMA and so um, that that was uh, the issue uh, in that particular case the prosecution the state wanted to say it was a look-alike to methamphetamine which carries a higher sentence than a look-alike the MDMA And as a drug expert, I looked at all the research and found that it was, in my opinion, more of a lookalike, the MDMA, which did carry the day, which reduced the sentence in that case. That was an impact on the sentencing. Um, But anyway, yeah, the lookalike, the big problem. um, Some of the laws are going to help and have helped. not as common here in middle america <laughs> so i haven't seen as many of those cases probably as my colleagues on the east and west coast
1: i see yeah you, you could you could imagine because of course the uh, in the case of uh, um say heroin and uh, fentanyl like the i presume because they are they're they're very different compounds but they have a s- similar uh working on the on the on the human body uh is it's the other, uh, case Can that be imagined as well? That there's like two substances that are chemically very similar yet have a completely uh, different uh, physical effect.
0: Yes, to some degree, I can see that. I can't. I can't think of where that's been an issue yet in my experience as a drug expert. The the bottom line and what I've always kind of waxed in, on in, in my testimony is that there is a true nature of the drug that doesn't change. So. Uh, we know that drugs work because their structure translates in the real world into, into a 3D shape, and they fit in another 3D shape pocket of a receptor. Now, if chemicals are very close, of course, they might have a shape similar enough to hit the same drug target or the same drug receptor. So in your case, you could have a change in the chemical that, even though it looks in the typical 2D structure shown on a piece of paper, that in three D world it would be different enough to act on a different receptor or something. So yeah, that's feasible.
1: I see. I see. Maybe maybe back to the the opioid crisis because uh, um, um, we also get to read a lot about that down here. Um, and th- did this change your your line of work?
0: Yeah, it. When I testify on the any of the opioid uh, issues, the cases I've had. Um, it's, it's kind of comforting to me because my own personal research has been into opioids and opioid receptors. So obviously of all the different drug areas, that one is nearest and dearest to me because I'm an opioid researcher in the lab. So, but the um, as we all know now, the, the rates of opioid overdose deaths have skyrocketed in the last 20 years across the world, especially here in the States. And... Um, and much of the testimony i give now when uh, it's an opioid overdose that case and i'm representing the the deceit or the the victim if you will um it's fairly easy i think to get the point across because just about everyone knows about the opioid epidemic right so in that sense physicians nowadays really should be extra careful because when it comes to litigation against them uh, they're not going to find too many juries, uh, members that have not heard at all about opioid overdose death. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things I use when I teach our, our medical students is, Hey, you know, uh, be very, very careful, you know, and then, you know, we've had new CDC guidelines, which of course tell physicians so much they should, they should give and much more limiting now, but the, uh, but the fact remains, you know, I still get cases where unfortunately too many uh, opioids were given and, and the patient in the hospital was not monitored for respiration, for example, and and oxygen saturation, and they ended up dying. And, you know, it's it's a little bit sad and tragic because it's so well known nowadays. You would think that all physicians, all hospitals would be extremely um attentive to any opioid effects but still we see opioid overdose deaths which shouldn't occur
1: so you mean you see cases where somebody comes in uh and uh without no uh, giving notice uh they have taken already some some opioids beforehand or something is that what you mean
0: well that there's some cases like that but the cases i see are more where the hospital or physician is treating a patient which with too many opioids. A very recent case: uh, a woman had uh, regular gynecological surgery, nothing, nothing, uh, you know, on But in the post anesthesia care unit, what we call the PACU, uh, she was given multiple doses of opioids and two different types IV, solu- you know, injections, and they left. They let her leave that unit up to the regular hospital ward and she overdosed and so a lot of the cases and like i mentioned what's so frustrating is because the opioid epidemic is so well known now but i still get a lot of cases where inadvertently people have died from opioid overdose at the hands of physicians very sad very sad
1: so you you indicate that you feel more comfortable uh, when it's about opioids um and of course you have vast uh, vast knowledge of different, different compounds, but um, wh- what do you do if you basically do not know a uh, substance, but it comes up in a case, how does that work?
0: That, that happens probably about half the time. But, so yeah, very good question. To me, those are some of the most challenging cases So I got a new case about an anti-epileptic drug I'm working on now, carbamazepine, tegretol, a very common one, but I've never, I mean, I teach a little bit about it in my anti-epileptics lecture, but I've never researched it. So that's, that's the cases I really enjoy because I get to dive into the literature. I get to learn as much as I can. And, you know, within a week or two before I write up the report, that's all I'm obsessed about and thinking about and learning about. And, um, so yeah, it's it, it's a different side, but even the drugs I know well, opioids, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, even when I talk to the attorney, I'm like, I still do my research because the research moves so fast nowadays. There might be a brand new paper talking about a new toxicity of methamphetamine or or a new mechanism of how benzos are causing sedation. You just you always have to do your searches and do your research for every case, even opioids. I do research every time to make sure I'm not missing anything. What I've strived to do and what I put a pretty heavy message on in the book is, is to be a drug expert that doesn't truly give just their opinion in the usual layman sense of the word, but actually evidence-based testimony. You want you don't wanna get up there and just talk without being able to have your whatever you say supported by the consensus in the research literature. It's very unfortunate that is not the standard in the drug expert or any of the expert witnessing as far as I know. I've experienced opposing experts, sometimes just retired physicians, talking about how they think a drug works just from their common knowledge of 20, 30 years ago. And so it's very frustrating because there's a lot of expert witnesses in courts nowadays that don't do the research, they don't get into it, and they don't produce a report that is referenced and and, uh, supported by uh, scientific evidence. So that's a little frustrating, but I still maintain that, and I let my lawyers know that, no, you're gonna get a report either preliminary or one to submit to the court that's gonna be well-referenced, I'm gonna do the research, You know, I'm gonna put my best foot forward as far as I can, because I don't care, at one level, I don't care who wins or loses. It's unfortunately a very adversary, adversarial system in, in the United States. Uh, there's mechanisms for the judge to actually could hire an expert, but it's rarely, rarely used. So you end up working for one side or the other. But the bottom line is, I really don't care who wins or loses. I got a full-time job. I'm busy enough. I don't have to do this. And, and I just want to try to get the truth out there the best I can. And so in order to do that, what is the definitional truth? For a scientist, it's what the accepted, tried and true, peer-reviewed clinical research literature says, right? That's the only thing we have that you can hang your hat on. You know, that's that's what I want to testify from. Many experts do not testify from that foundation.
1: What, what would you say is the most uh, um, most misunderstood drug? Wow, that's a really in, good in, the, question. in these cases that you run into, so to say. That's a really good question. I think in,
0: in one sense, I would have to say alcohol. Alcohol, again, is a really strange drug for most of the world, but especially in America, because it's so highly glorified and advertised and, you know, accepted. I mean, drug abuse with alcohol is accepted. You turn 21, 21 shots you have to do. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's crazy here in America. and And yet it is probably one of the most neurotoxic drugs. When I did research for the first case I had And someone that changed the will, the woman I spoke about earlier, who was on chemotherapy and an alcoholic, I could not believe what the most recent literature showed as far as actual neuron death and, you know, neurotoxic effects of alcohol. Um, You know, I've never, I'm very, very moderate drinker. A beer or two on a hot summer day is my ideal alcoholic intake. But it makes me realize, you know, our society totally misunderstands alcohol you know, we just do have not have any idea of how dangerous it is and not to mention it's the most common drug that pregnant women drink is alcohol and there's very well established uh, neurotoxic effects on the offspring. So, yeah, so in one sense, I would probably say alcohol with the other drugs. Most people don't really know how drugs work. Um, you know, I always kind of assume well, people realize there's a drug there's a drug receptor. It has some interaction. But. I don't think that's super clear for a lot of drugs. You know, they don't think like uh, heroin or fentanyl or morphine working at the same receptors that our own endogenous opioids do, the endorphins do, or things like that. So that whole concept of how drugs work, it's been such a part of my life for so many years that I think I don't realize it's maybe not common knowledge.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I see. And, well, I presume that you follow... Quite some drug expert cases in which you are not an active participant, so to say. Um, is there is there a, a class of substances that in the in the courtroom tends to go wrong because of min- misunderstanding of a certain sort of substance? For instance, these retired physicians, as you as you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, there's probably ways to follow other drug expert testimony. Um, I know there's some fairly high-priced legal subscriptions to get to those records. So, I, I unfortunately, I don't really know what else is out there unless the attorneys I'm working for, you know, hand me a deposition or a transcript or a report from a, from the opposing expert. But, yes, I think the probably the most significant time that that issue has come up has to do with lethal injection. You know, the original Oklahoma case, you had a pharmacist who only relied on drugs.com for his pharmacology information. And that's in the court record. And yet the Supreme Court took that as a a valid opinion and and carried the day. So, you know, retired physicians, people that don't really do their research, it's much, much more crucial in a case where we have state-assisted homicide. You know, we have, uh, you know, to me, there's nothing higher than the taking of a human life. And so that's probably the, the most impact where pharmacology ignorance, you know, has a role. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's sad that way.
1: Yeah, and it's fascinating that as far as I understood the chapter, that there's not much of a, a federal standard for it as well.
0: Correct. Um, well, you know, the feds for more than 17 years did not try to execute anyone on federal death row. And then unfortunately under our previous president a month before uh, uh, inauguration day or so, they decided they're gonna ramp up and they had a string of federal executions after a delay of more than 17 years. So that was very sad. They used a a, uh, common one drug, uh, pentobarbital uh, in lethal injection method. But uh, that method uh, using a barbiturate um is the one that's used by texas which does the most executions and if you look over time uh that has been the method that has been used by more states and more executions than any other method however it's there's been eight or nine different protocols and that right there to me doesn't say too much for how these states are using lethal ingestion because they're all trying different things all the time And so, you know, I'm always getting called the case where, oh, we have this protocol and I'm like, what you're using this drug? I mean, what's their reasoning? And, you know, it's just, you get shocked by the, um, uh, the instantaneous disclosure of new lethal injection methods that don't seem to be based on any medical or pharmacology reasoning. So... Just the idea of the states deciding which drugs to use, the Department of Corrections and the wardens and their district attorneys and attorney generals of states are involved in those decisions and not any bona fide committee of professionals, you know, is I find very disheartening and, and disingenuine because they say they do a great job, but that has not been shown to be the case. <laughs>
1: OK, one, one more substance, maybe um, weed uh, marijuana in recent years has um, uh, changed uh, in, in its legal status in many different places in the in the U.S. Uh, does that affect your work?
0: Yes, it does. Um, I've had quite a few marijuana cases. Uh, uh, driving under the intoxication was one and, and um, had an interesting case I talk about in the book where uh, uh, a child is is uh thought to be under the influence of marijuana by in a divorce case and uh the mother has the child's hair tested and then it, it comes out positive and accuses the father of feeding the kid marijuana brownies or something but anyway that case highlights uh some of the modern marijuana issues having to do with driving and the new laws and the where it's uh medical and where it's recreational so, yes, that has ramped up uh, in a bit, although it's always been there just because marijuana is the most popular, uh, you know, illegal drug in America in terms of numbers. So I've always had a few cases here and there. But, yeah, the, the issues that are I, I think that are coming up and that I've seen already is that uh, Oklahoma, like many states that has some form of legalized marijuana, does not have a set limit like it does for alcohol, alcohol point zero eight. Percent bac blood alcohol concentration is standard throughout the states europe it's usually a bit lower asia it's even lower but um marijuana some states like colorado sent a set a five nanogram per mil limit of concentration of thc in the blood to be impaired driving not a bad idea i mean it was it's uh not really known but the bottom line is that um the blood levels in any driving under the influence case usually are only uh, supportive. In other words, somebody has to see a car swerving or they have to fail a field sobriety test. So in and of themselves, uh, usually they can't be used to show impairment. Where marijuana is at like that, I believe the next step will be, I predict, will be once there's on-road or on-site testing, when there's a saliva test for THC, then we'll start to see that litigation boot up you know, uh, much more because the number of people that are using marijuana, but yeah, it's, there's a
1: lot of issues having to do with marijuana for sure. All right. So I, I would have maybe, maybe one more final question in, uh, in terms of your, your, your work and, and so what you do academically and as a, a drug expert, um, do you have a particular source of inspiration? That's a great question. Um, Einstein, you mentioned before the show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's only have to do with my hair. Um, (laughs) You know, my inspiration is probably a little more personal. Um, I lost my father recently. Um, He was a big role model for me because he was a reader. As a small child, he was always reading. I always saw him reading. I mean, when I was a small child, not when he was. Um, So a lot of times I think of my father, he was also... Uh, a man that was very compassionate about what's right in our society. He marched with Martin Luther King, went down from, from Chicago to Alabama to march with, with Martin Luther King. And so in a sense, I feel a little bit inspired by my own father because he was a justice seeker. And, and, and in some small way, I feel like I'm part of that. You know, I'm trying to get justice for people that are involved with drugs. And so... In that way, he's, he's an inspiration. The science, so for, that's more for the drug expert side. The scientific side, again, somewhat of inspiration, but a lot of that inspiration I have to lay on my various mentors and advisors and PhD advisor and people that have, you know, encouraged me to, uh, you know, become a scientist. So anyway, that's a great question, though. I never thought about that before.
1: <laughs> All right. All right, so... Um- well, there there is a final question that we tend to ask everybody who uh, who comes on the show. Also, in terms of uh, future interviews, um, is there wh- what's your current current project? Uh, what are you working on? Is there a, a new book that we might expect at some point?
0: Yes, that's interesting. You bring that up. I am working on a new book, and I'll give you a sneak preview of the title, tentative title. It's called The Poppy Collector, and. It's uh, the name that uh, I use for the opioid receptor, the actual protein that binds opioids or poppy products. So the poppy collector is going to be an intimate look at the opioid receptor. Uh, and kind of in light how, it's responsible for the opioid epidemic. We always talk about the drugs and you know, ways to decrease drug use and therefore decrease opioid overdose deaths but I wanna look at the flip side of it. I wanna look at the receptor and really explain how the receptor is just as much at fault, of course, for the effects of the opioids, because that's where the opioids bind. And I've come up with some novel strategies that we could target the opioid receptor to try to reduce the death toll from the opioid epidemic. So that's in the works, Uh, no time soon, but keep your eyes open, the poppy collector.
1: Fascinating. Uh, who knows, we will get to speak about that in the future. I uh, would love that.
0: I as well. It's been excellent talking with you.
1: Yeah, same here. It's been an honor. Um, and I wish you all the best and uh, hope we'll speak next time.
0: Thank you very much. Have a great
1: day. Same to you. Bye bye.